The Academic Podcast Agency. Episode 1, Irreplaceable. Hello and welcome to the People and Forest podcast. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to learn more about our relationships with forests, why forests matter to us, and how new ways of thinking about nature and rights could help us protect forests for present and future generations. I'm Dr. Helen Dancer. I'm a senior lecturer in law and anthropology at the University of Sussex. And for the past few years, I have been researching relationships between people and forests in England and globally. In this podcast, I will be sharing with you some of the insights I have gained through my research on our relationship with forests, nature and rights over the past few years. In this episode, I'd like to invite you to take a step back from the busyness and fast pace of our daily lives and instead to think about the long term and the nature of our relationship with forests over centuries past and future. What is it that makes forests special and even irreplaceable? Firstly, what is a forest? The first forest appeared on Earth around 380 million years ago. According to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, Today, forests cover around 30% of Earth's land surface and are home to 80% of terrestrial biodiversity, including many endangered species. The flora, fauna and fungi of forests vary tremendously across the globe, from the richly biodiverse tropical forests of Brazil, Indonesia and the Congo Basin, to temperate forests of countries such as the UK, to the evergreen boreal forests, of the circumpolar region, including Siberia and northern Canada. The meaning of forests to the people who live there is as diverse as humanity itself. All over the planet, forests play a central part in human livelihoods, cultural identities, spiritual belief systems and well-being. And there are hundreds of different definitions of forests often related to a particular cultural, historical or legal context. In England, for example, well-known forests such as the New Forest, the Forest of Dean or Epping Forest are about much more than trees. These forests also have a rich cultural and socio-economic history, including commoning traditions. What makes the New Forest so important for biodiversity is its mosaic of habitats including heathland, bogs, mires and rivers, as well as ancient woodland. Consider when was the last time that you spent time in a forest, when you stopped to notice the changing seasons, the quality of the earth beneath your feet, the sounds of life in a woodland, or the smell of the air. How do you feel when you spend time there? How would you feel if it was no longer there? How easy is it to replace a forest or woodland? According to the historian and ecologist of British woodlands, Oliver Rackham, 
Our relationships with trees and woods today have been evolving since the end of the last ice age around 12,000 years ago, when prehistoric wildwood re-established itself throughout the British Isles. Over the centuries, this relationship has been one of both preservation and plunder. On the one hand, people have cared for woodlands and contributed to enhancing woodland biodiversity and have prolonged the life of ancient trees through traditional woodland management practices such as coppicing and pollarding. But people have also been responsible for the loss of huge swathes of wildwood ever since Neolithic times. Oliver Rackham noted that by doomsday, woodland cover in England was just 7%. Over the centuries, destruction of woodlands continued, and by the beginning of the 20th century, woodland cover was at a mere 4.7%. People continued to fell ancient woodland throughout the century. In many places, it was replaced by fast-growing conifer plantations as the UK government sought to increase the amount of woodland cover and the national timber supply. This caused Rackham to predict, in 1976, that no native woodland outside of nature reserves would survive the 20th century. Fortunately, this has turned out not to be the case. The 1970s was a landmark decade for nature conservation, as people and governments around the world became increasingly aware of environmental concerns. In recent decades, UK government policy has also moved away from planting conifers to restoring ancient woodland sites. While woodland cover in the UK is currently among the lowest rates in Europe, at around 13%, the UK is also one of the few places in Northern Europe to have retained some of its ancient trees and woodlands. Despite this, throughout the country, many areas of ancient woodland remain at risk. According to the Woodland Trust, Well over a 1,000 ancient woods across the UK are under threat from development, while during the last 21 years, over 980 have been permanently lost or damaged. What makes an ancient woodland special? And why should we want to conserve it? Officially, a woodland is considered ancient if historical data shows that the area has been wooded continuously since at least 1600 AD. What makes ancient woodland not just important but irreplaceable, however, is its rich biodiversity and soil composition. According to the author Peter Vollenburn, there are more life forms in a handful of forest soil than there are people on the planet. These undisturbed soils also lock away significant amounts of carbon which makes them important for the stability of our climate too. Ancient woodland also holds irreplaceable traces of the relationships between people and woods over centuries. You can spot the legacies of ancient woodland management practices, including coppice stools and wood banks. And these also provide the perfect habitat for primeval woodland organisms, such as lichens, as well as being a haven for many threatened species. According to the Woodland Trust, during the 20th century, around 38% of ancient woodland sites were felled and replanted with non-native conifers and other tree species that don't have the same rich biodiversity. 
Importantly, however, these planted sites have retained much of the rich, complex soils of the ancient woodland. And it is these soils that make them important restoration sites for biodiversity. What we must learn from this is that richly biodiverse woodlands, including their soils, take a long time to evolve. So as well as planting new woodlands for present and future generations, we also need to look after the irreplaceable ancient woodland that we still have. To what extent does law recognise the irreplaceability of ancient woodlands? The UK government has long been aware of the irreplaceable qualities of ancient woodland. In 1994, the government's UK Biodiversity Action Plan noted, Given time, perhaps centuries, new woods may be able to achieve the same level of biodiversity as ancient woodland, but the full suite of communities and features associated with ancient woodland can never be replicated. According to the Woodland Trust, around 15% of ancient woodland in the UK is currently protected by conservation designations. Beyond this, the irreplaceable nature of ancient woods and trees is formally recognised in the National Planning Policy Framework. This includes a presumption against allowing development that would result in the loss or deterioration of ancient trees and woods unless there are, quote, wholly exceptional reasons, and a suitable compensation strategy exists. However, this does not guarantee protection, and in practice, there's been a lack of transparency in the interpretation of wholly exceptional. It's also the case that if a government wants to introduce a national infrastructure project, Parliament can pass legislation that allows for the destruction of ancient woodland. Currently, the single biggest threat to ancient woodland is the HS2 rail project, affecting over 100 ancient woodlands in its path. When challenged, recent court cases have seen government policy prevail. In 2020, the TV presenter and environmental campaigner, Chris Packham, brought an application for judicial review against the government and HS2 to stop the destruction of ancient woodland. However, the court concluded that the project should proceed in the national interest as determined by the government and confirmed through legislation, even though this would result in irreversible damage and harm to ancient woodland. Since then, the Environment Act of 2021 has introduced a new legally binding target to halt nature's decline in the UK by 2030. But while law has the capacity to protect nature it can also authorise its destruction in a particular context. Part of what makes this possible is the rhetoric of net zero and net gain and the practice of offsetting, whether for carbon emissions or biodiversity loss. What does net zero, net gain or no net loss mean in practice? It doesn't mean no carbon emissions or biodiversity loss. It means that losses that cannot be avoided can be mitigated, offset or compensated by gains elsewhere. One of the consequences of governments, businesses and individuals looking to mitigate the losses they cause, whether through a high-speed rail project or carbon emissions from transport or energy use, has been to turn tree planting into an investment commodity for offsetting, 
sometimes incentivizing buying up farmland traditionally used for food crops for large-scale planting in places that are inappropriate. When it comes to the irreplaceable qualities of ancient woodland, however, how credible is it to claim that tree planting and biodiversity offsetting schemes can compensate for the loss of all the ecological, cultural and historic features of a particular wood that has evolved for over four centuries? Isn't it in the very essence of the irreplaceable that we can never adequately compensate its loss? Should we not be cautious of the implications of net zero discourse? On the one hand, we need ways of measuring biodiversity and carbon to set a baseline for progress. But we also need to remember the importance of processes, not just outcomes, and the story behind the numbers that get us to net zero or net gain. Part of what should motivate us to care about process and the irreplaceable nature of ancient woodland is the growing body of scientific evidence that is giving us new insights into the interconnected web of life in forests. For over two decades, Professor of Forest Ecology at the University of British Columbia, Suzanne Simard, has been studying the ways that trees communicate and support each other through networks of soil fungi, known as mycorrhizal networks. Her scientific evidence demonstrates that trees can recognise their kin and that larger trees transmit nutrients to other trees in the forest to support them. Even more intriguing is that she has shown that trees behave in ways that demonstrate cognitive qualities and capabilities in perception, learning and memory, providing a scientific basis for the argument that trees are sentient. What I find so important about this scientific research into tree sentience by Simard and other scholars is that it challenges our perception of trees and forests and causes us to rethink our understanding of how species relate to each other. Just as humans cooperate as well as compete, we see a complexity of relationships between trees in forests as well. This raises fundamental questions about human relationships with the rest of nature. Are we apart from nature, at the apex of a hierarchical ordering of species, or are we part of nature? While many indigenous peoples have long seen themselves as part of nature, this has not been the case for many people living in industrialised societies like the UK. However, what we are seeing now is the beginning of a movement, perhaps even a global cultural shift, in the way that we think about our relationship with nature. In the context of the climate and biodiversity crises, people are becoming increasingly aware of the fact that we need nature for a habitable planet, and we need to rethink our relationship with nature for the sake of present and future generations. Even the language of human rights is beginning to shift towards the idea of a human right to nature. But given what scientific research is telling us about life in forests and the sentience of other species, we can ask another question. Does nature also have rights? In the next episode, I'll be exploring the idea of rights of nature in cases around the world 
where the rights of forests have been recognised in new legal ways. I'll be asking what this means for the people and other species that live there. Thank you very much for listening. For recommended reading on the subjects covered in this episode, please visit the show notes on your podcast player. This podcast episode was written and presented by myself, Helen Dancer, produced by Will Hood of the Academic Podcast Agency, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the University of Sussex, and uses sound archive from New Forest Sounds.